Now, I have said repeatedly that toward the end of this book, John begins to wrap together the truth test and the love test and the obedience test so that they become so enmeshed you can't have one without the other. We saw something of the way that was developing already last night at the end of chapter 4. And in the first five verses of chapter 5, they're squeezed together in clause after clause after clause. So I want to see how they come together in clause after clause. And then John reverts to what we've called all along the truth test. That is truth about who Jesus is. So just as the book opens with a prologue and strong affirmations about Jesus, the Son of God, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard about, which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled. So he comes toward the end of the book and he reverts to Jesus Christ again. He opens the book with Jesus Christ. He ends the book with Jesus Christ, this this truth test that is at the heart of all genuine Christianity. Then having laid this all out to the end of verse 12, he summarizes what the whole book is about. And the whole book is about, he says, it has as its purpose the engendering of genuine Christian assurance in the life of the believer, verse 13. And then in the following verses, he teases out what that assurance ought to do in our lives. What's, what's the cash payment, spiritually speaking, of this assurance in our lives? And that brings the book to an end. So let's begin by going through the first five verses, clause by clause, rather quickly, simply to see how these various tests come together. What we discover... Um, what we discover is that one of the ingredients that holds them together is the nature of the new birth. So we read, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, now there's the truth test. Unlike the Gnostics who were claiming that Jesus and the Christ are really quite distinguishable, the Christ merely settled on Jesus for a while. No, no, no. The Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who believes that, truly believes it, is born of God. So now we've come back to this work of the Spirit, sometimes called the anointing of the Spirit, this regeneration of the Spirit that has already been mentioned in the book. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. That is, if you're born of God, then you're a child of God. That's presupposed. But then other people who have also been born of God are your spiritual siblings. So you've come to the truth of the gospel. They've come to the truth of the gospel And believed it. Believed it because of this spiritual anointing, this new birth, this regeneration. So you've been regenerated by the power of God. And thus you have believed the truth about who Jesus is. And so have they. But that makes them your spiritual siblings. And of course, if they're your spiritual siblings, if you love the Father and they love the Father, same Father, you will love each other. And now you've got the truth test tied to the love test. And it turns on the fact that it's not merely a truth test in isolated propositional categories, I believe something, but the thing that you believe has focused on Christ Jesus and been engendered in you by the new birth. And this new birth, along with new birth in someone else, creates this spiritual family that guarantees a genuine love amongst the children of God. This is how we know that we love the children of God. How shall we know? Because we feel it? Because there's an intense little tug now and then? Because we're nice to each other? Well, the practicalities of loving one another have been mentioned already pretty strongly in chapter 4, but that's not what is said here. This is how we know that we love the children of God, 
by loving God and carrying out his commands. That is, our love for God is first because of this regeneration. We love the same father. And because we love him, then it's not too surprising that we love his children. And if we do truly love God, then one of the evidences that we really do love God is that we want to do what he says. He's God, after all. So we obey his commands. But his commands include loving one another. And now you've got the truth test and the love test and the obedience test all tied together, circling around this notion that we've been born again, regenerated by God. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. In other words, the way you know that you really do love God is by keeping his commands. That goes back to the teaching of Jesus. You can find it in John chapter 14 and 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So anyone who goes around with a mystical notion of spirituality and how much they love Jesus and love God but are living indistinguishably from the world, they're kidding themselves. For the truth is that love for God, which also engenders love for one another, also issues in keeping the commands of God, which includes the command to love one another. (laughs) You just can't get out of this chain. It's all tied together, do you see? And his commandments are not burdensome. You must not start thinking of these commandments now as a real burden to bear. All right, I'm a Christian. He saved me. If I have to obey, I'll obey. No, 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 they're they're not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. That is, his commandments to love one another, his commandments to be holy and so on. They, They can be right challenges for somebody who does not know God in any sense at all, where they're just going through the motions. I have to obey a commandment. It's a mere duty. But no, this commandment comes within the matrix of the new birth. And because we receive the Holy Spirit, we have the empowering to actually do what is right. We have the empowering of God to love one another. So the command to love one another comes with the ability, the God-given ability through the new birth to love one another. So his, burden, his, his commandments are not burdensome, not because they're not strict or they're not disciplined or they're not countercultural, but because they are enmeshed in the gift of the Holy Spirit, this anointing from God that transforms us so that we want to do things that we would otherwise not have done. His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That is, faith is the means by which all of this is appropriated. We trust this God. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes, that is, who exercises faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. There's the truth test again. So you've come back to the propositional truth. In other words, the notion of overcoming in Scripture is not reserved for a select few. There are masses of ordinary Christians out there. And then over here, in a super-sanctified corner, are the overcoming Christians. That's not the way that this works at all. This passage treats the overcoming language and applies it to everyone who's a Christian. The same also with the book of Revelation in the letters to the seven churches. He who overcomes, I will give this and so on, so on, so on. Again and again and again, this he who overcomes language, the conqueror language. Or again in Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall this or that or the other thing? No, 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 we're more than conquerors. And in every instance where this conquering verb is used, The reference is not to a super elite selection of Christians, but to all Christians. Christians, by definition, if they're Christians at all, 
overcome the world. In some measure, in some degrees, different rates of growth and all of that, but necessarily, if they're Christians at all, they overcome the world and their orientation, their value system, their priorities, what they do with their time, their imagination, what they pursue, what they idolize, what they love, and so on. It's all changed. They begin to overcome the world because this is part of what it means to be a Christian. And all of it turns on this faith that is exercised in Jesus, the Son of God. Thus, it is not possible to think of passing one test out of three or two tests out of three. It all hangs together. It's an all-or-nothing package. It's wonderful. Because at the end of the day, it does not finally depend on us. It depends on the power of God within us in regeneration. And the object of our faith, Christ Jesus, the Lord. Jesus Christ come in the flesh. And because he ends then this um, reverie of putting the things together with Jesus, the Son of God, he then goes on in the following verses, 6 to 12, to talk about this test of truth a little further. First, the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and the witnesses born to that nature. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. This is not an easy passage. And it became more difficult with the addition of other words that you find in most of your printed Bibles in a footnote at the bottom of the page. So that inserted in late manuscripts are what are verses 7 and 8. If an extension so that you read there are three witnesses on the earth there are three that testify but now you add also there are three that testify in heaven the father the word and the holy spirit and these three are one and there are three that testify on earth and then the rest that we have in our text so in other words you have three heavenly witnesses the members of the triune god and three earthly witnesses the water the blood and the spirit And that got into the King James Version, for example. And if it's original, then it's one of the strongest testimonies to the Holy Trinity in all of the Word of God. But it's not original. You you have to put yourself in the situation before the printing press was invented. Today, we churn out thousands, millions of Bibles, each one looking exactly like another one because the same plates are used or the same digital processes are used. And, 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 and you can tell the difference between the printed text and in a wide margin Bible, the notes that you put in on the side. But in the ancient world where manuscripts were copied by hand, sometimes when you made a copy, you made a mistake. And then you put the correction in, in the margin so that the person who made a copy of the next one would put that correction back into the text. But some people wrote notes in the margin that were not meant to be corrections of the text. They were just notes in the margin. 
And then the next copier would come along and think that they're actually corrections and put them into the text and thus insert something into the text that wasn't actually there. Do you see? You can track this out because it's often a different handwriting or a different colored ink. You can see it in the manuscripts pretty clearly. It's the sort of mistake that's virtually impossible to make once the printing press is here. Now, at the time of the Reformation, everybody was using the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, and the Vulgate had these words in. But with the impact of the Renaissance and new learning again in Greek and Hebrew and the way it impacted the Reformation, suddenly you had a whole lot of scholars teaching and reading Greek and Hebrew, looking for the original manuscripts. And as they began to collect manuscripts again about the time of the Reformation, Erasmus, who was putting together a Greek New Testament, um, and, and Luther, who was putting together a, a German translation and so on, they, they, they did not find any, any manuscripts with these heavenly witnesses in. Erasmus, in particular, published his first edition of his Greek New Testament in the uh, early 1500s and, um, and left it out, whereupon he was soundly criticized by the Catholic Church, uh, of which he was still a part, um, saying, um, you're tampering with the word of God. You're leaving out things that are there in the Latin text. And he said, but I haven't found any manuscripts so far with the words in. You show me a manuscript with the words in, I'll put them back in. Whereupon a manuscript was found. <laughs> Except that everybody discovered it was written actually by Catholic authorities. It was written after the challenge was made. <laughs> so in the next edition, Erasmus put the words in and then put a little footnote saying, you know, I said if a manuscript was found with the words, I'll, I, I'd put them in. So the manuscript's been found, and so I've, I've put them in. I've kept my promise, but I've got to tell you that this manuscript was written after I made the promise. And, and thus he vitiated the whole thing. Now, in point of fact, since then, thousands more manuscripts have been discovered. And there, was, there is one manuscript, a minuscule, that is written in small letters from the 14th century that does have the words in. But that's as far back as it goes. Let me tell you how it probably came to be. P people early on in the, Catholic, in, 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 the, in the universal church, even in the late patristic period, they're reading the text. And the, 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 tec the text speaks of these three earthly witnesses, these three witnesses on earth. And somebody in a pious meditation scribbles in the margin, and there are three heavenly witnesses too, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, it's own private meditation in the notes. I, my Bible is full of notes in the margin. But because it's printed, nobody's going to squeeze them into the next edition of this printing. Do, 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 do you see? And so, and so somebody, somewhere along, copied them in. It was probably done in Latin first, in the Latin Bible, which is why it came down to us in the Vulgate. But they're not original. So because they're not original, I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> but the words that are left are still challenging enough. What is meant? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Well, you may recall that when I talked about the proto-Gnostics in the first evening, um, I said that they fell into various camps, but that one group of them thought that the Christ, the Son of God, came upon Jesus at his baptism. Water. And then abandon him as Jesus hung on the cross. That's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was crying out, in fact, to the Son of God, who had abandoned him and left him in the lurch, dying all by himself. Do you see? Blood. 
And in fact, the Greek preposition here is really significant. The text does not say he came by water and blood. It says he came through water and blood. That is, what the text is insisting is that Jesus the Christ, Jesus the God-man, was one being right through baptism and right through his death. That is, right through them, not that Christ came on Jesus at his baptism and left him at his death, but rather he is the one who came through water and blood. I think that is what is being said. Not by water and blood. No, no, no. Through water and blood, and it is the Spirit who testifies. After all, what happens at Jesus' baptism? The Spirit descended as a dove, rested upon him, and the voice from heaven testified, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Thus you have the Spirit's presence, confirming that this already is the Son, and then the voice of God speaking from heaven, authenticating him, as it were. Now, with this background, read these words again. Verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, through water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. That's what happened at Jesus' baptism. There are thus three who testify. The Spirit, who bore witness, as it were, by his very presence. The water and the blood, that is, these very events through which the God-man Jesus Christ passed. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. This may be referring to God's sovereignty over all of these events, or it may mean God's testimony at Jesus' baptism when the voice from heaven actually speaks and says, this is my son. Do you see? Not, I'm giving you my son now, I'm pouring him out. No, 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 no. no. The spirit comes upon Jesus to testify as to who he is. And God himself has spoken along these lines. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. That yields then the ultimate all or nothing principle. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. That is this eternal life that comes about by the new birth, of which the author has spoken in the first verses of this chapter. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is the supreme assertion of the importance of Christ for understanding God. Do you recall on the night that he was betrayed, Philip says, show us the Father and we will believe. To which Jesus responds, Have I been with you all this time, and do you really still not understand? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That is the sort of statement that only a megalomaniac could make. Hey, if you've looked at me, folks, you've looked at God. Or someone who's telling the truth.
And if he's telling the truth, it brings you back to the witness testimony of John. We have seen him with our own eyes. That is the very one who inhabits eternity. From the beginning, we have seen him. And elsewhere, they touch him. They handle him. They have heard his words. This is God made flesh. So much so that if you reject this supreme revelation of God, then you're rejecting God himself. That's what the text is saying. If you find something offensive about this Jesus, you find something offensive about God. Because Jesus is God's own testimony as to who God is. And that's the way the substance of the book ends up. Now we come to the conclusion. The conclusion, verses 13 to 21, is broken up into two unequal parts. First, the purpose in writing, verse 13. Then the implications of that purpose, verses 14 to 17. And then a lovely summary, verses 18 to 20, what we know in three dramatic propositions. We know three things, and they're laid out. All right, the purpose in writing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment to gain a little bit of historical perspective. At the time of the Reformation, Roman Catholics held that you could not know before you die that you have eternal life. Because after all, you might think that you're okay and then go and commit a mortal sin and be in grave danger. Even if you commit venal sins, well, you could spend a long time in purgatory. That's why you pay for masses to get rid of some of these sins. But just the same, you could spend a long time there. And how long that time was, nobody knows. It could be years. It could be thousands of years. You, you, you just don't know. The only thing that's going to get you out so that you don't have to go to purgatory is by a general absolution. And, of course, it was Tetzel selling these general absolutions, which was the trigger that brought about the Reformation. Tetzel had the authority from Rome to sell these general absolutions at outrageous prices so that you got a sort of get-out-of-hell card quick. You paid the money. The Vatican raised a whole lot of money to do some improvements to St. Peter's. And, 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 and meanwhile, you got a get-out-of-hell card, which meant that you could sin in any way you liked. It didn't matter. You had a get-out-of-hell-free card. Do, 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 do you see? That's the only way you could have assurance of salvation before you die. But for everybody else, um, well, you're probably going to spend some time in purgatory. The question is how much. And if you've really committed a, an unconfessed mortal sin, then, then, then you're damned. Then along come the reformers. With their understanding of the gospel, they insist that Christ paid for our sin in its totality. So there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we can have assurance before we die that we are accepted before God. You don't have to live your life in mortal fear all the time because Christ has paid for our sin. When you approach the pearly gates, your plea is not, yeah, but I really did try hard, 
Or, yeah, but it was awfully difficult. I think that under the circumstances I should be let in. Your plea, if you are an informed Christian, according to the Reformers, is, my answer is Jesus Christ. He died for my sin. He bore my sin in his own body on the tree. I deserve admittance, not because I personally have earned it, but because his righteousness has been reckoned to me as my sin has been reckoned to him. He has taken my sin. I have his righteousness. And therefore, I must be admitted. That is the guarantee of Christ and the gospel. That's what the reformers said. Luther had a particular twist on it. If some Christians had some doubts about whether they were truly accepted by God, whether they were truly saved or not, he said that if you have doubts, it's because your faith itself is not strong enough. The way to overcome doubts as to whether or not you're saved is to see ever more clearly what the gospel actually teaches. If you see what the gospel teaches, then your faith is strengthened. Doubt is merely the diminution of faith because you don't understand the gospel well enough. The way to overcome doubt is to have a clear grasp of Christ and the gospel. And When you see what Christ has truly done, your faith is strengthened and that's what overcomes doubt. Do you see? Calvin said something a little bit different. Now the way Calvin's view is sometimes presented is this way. I think that it has to be tweaked a little bit, but this way. Calvin began with verses like the one I've just read, 513. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. Notice the difference. I write to you who believe so that you may know, which presupposes that some people believe and don't know. Now in Luther's reconstruction, if you believe, you know. And if you don't know, then it's because your faith isn't very strong. What you need is more belief. It's more faith, which is predicated on a deeper knowledge of the gospel. But this text is is saying, I'm writing to you who believe. That's step one. That you may know, which is a separate step. And in that context, Calvin said, when you read this book, yes, there's talk about the death of Christ and his atoning sacrifice and propitiation in chapter 2 and chapter 4, but there are these other tests as well. I mean, this is how you know because you love the brothers. This is how you know because you keep my commandments. This is how you know because you, you, you believe the truth. So Calvin's position is often portrayed as a three-legged stool. Your Christian assurance, people say that Calvin says, rests on three legs. One Confidence in Christ Jesus. He died for our sins. That's what Luther says. Two, changed behavior so that you really do love the brothers and sisters and you really do obey the commandments of God. You you now live differently. That too becomes another leg on which to rest your confidence. And three, he speaks of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself um, comes along and bears witness with your spirit that you really are a child of God. So the Christian assurance, therefore, unlike Luther, who says that Christian assurance rests on the exclusive sufficiency of the cross work of Christ. Just get that straight and you have Christian assurance. Calvin says, according to his uh, descriptors, uh, his uh, expounders, for him... 
Assurance rests on these three legs, a stool with three legs, the objective work of Christ, the transformation of life, and the inner secret work of the Holy Spirit. So I thought that's what Calvin said for years and years and years. And then I read Calvin. And bang goes another theory. Um, actually, the three-leg stool is not completely wrong. The problem is you speak of a three-leg stool and all the legs have to be the same length or the stool falls over. You can't have one leg about this long and the other two legs are only about this long. But, but that's the way Calvin manages his three-legged stool. That is, basically, he says, Christian assurance rests on the finished work of Christ. He sounds very Lutheran. But he also speaks of confirming witnesses, the confirming witness of your transformed life and the confirming witness of the Holy Spirit. So he does say a little bit more than what Luther says, but he's very close to Luther. He puts most of the confidence in the finished work of Christ and not on the testimony of a transformed life. For the witness of the Spirit, in addition to some verses in 1 John, he would, re- he would cite Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit who received you does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and By him we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you you see there's a subjective inner element of the Spirit giving us confidence somehow with our spirit, an internal thing. So let's grant that that's part of what gives us confidence. Then he says these other elements also give us confidence. Now, suddenly, that makes the whole doctrine of Christian assurance a little more complicated, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but at one point or another in my life, I was trained in all of the contemporary um, modes of evangelism, the four spiritual laws and Kennedy's five steps and, and uh, two ways to live from Australia. and, and uh, You name them, I've, I've, I've done them. And... In most of them, they end with some kind of desire to give assurance to the person who's just prayed the prayer, don't they? Um, so if you go the Romans route or the John Road and so on, in the John Road, you end up usually with John 5, 24, uh, whoever uh, believes in the Son has eternal life and so on. So the person is actually prayed to receive Christ, and then you're told to say something like this. Do you have eternal life? I don't know. What does the text say? Well, the text says if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. So, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. So, do you have eternal life? Well, I don't know. Um, So, you go around this about 14 times until the person gets it in his head that if they believe in Jesus Christ, they have eternal life regardless of how they feel. What you're trying to do is base their assurance on the promises of God The promise of God says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. So you have eternal life. And on what is that based? It's based on the fact that the God himself says that if if you believe in the Son, then you have eternal life. Do you see? What you're trying to do is engender assurance on the basis of the promise of God. But in the book of Acts, there are 27 different conversion episodes In not one of them does the Christian, usually an apostle, who is leading the person to Christ, instantly try to offer assurance. 
Why are we doing that? But it's more than that. What stands over against Christian doubt can be a lot of different things. Some people doubt because um, they don't have enough information. They need to have things better explained to them. When I was pastor of a church in Vancouver, we had a college and careers group with, I don't know, close to 100 in it. And one of them was a young woman called Peggy. Peggy was a star. If you stick Peggy in one end of the room and the other 99 at the other end of the room, 90% of the energy in the room was at Peggy's end. She was one of those. Um, She could not think linearly. She would have made a lousy engineer. But on the artsy side, she was vivacious and energetic and really enthusiastic about her faith. She was a student at the University of British Columbia. Marvelous lass. And she came to me one day and said, Pastor Don, there's a guy at the university by the name of Fred who wants to go out with me so that I can explain something of Christianity to him. What do you think? I said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. No, 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 I don't want to do anything naughty. I mean, I, I don't want to date the guy. I mean, I'm certainly not going to marry him. I, I just want to explain my faith to him. Do you know? Don't you think that's a good idea? Uh-huh. <laughs> and after several rounds of this, finally, um, I said, Daryl, fine, fine. Go out to him, explain the gospel, go out with him, explain the gospel to him, and then bring him to see me. Thinking that would be enough to kill a dead right there. Next Sunday night, 10.30, I was in my study trying to finish things off. I was still single in those days, so I could work late on a Saturday night. The tuck, 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 tuck on my door, in bounces Peggy with Fred in tow. Hi, Pastor Don, this is Fred, he wants to meet you. Well, I could see right away that that wasn't the truth. (laughs) We went out to a coffee shop, one of these 24-hour deals, and we sat down. I was trying to make him relax and find out a little bit. He had no background in Christian things at all. Didn't have a clue. And I was trying to uh, get to know him and take away the tension a wee bit and explain elementary Christianity and suggested a couple of things that he would read, and he went off. He was as linear and as dour and as restrained as she was vivacious and bouncy and effervescent and artsy. I mean, talk about opposites attract. Next Saturday night, tuck, 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 10.30, in they come again, off we go to the coffee shop. This time he had a list of questions. We talked till 2 or 2.30 in the morning. He was taking notes, he had questions. Went away. Next Saturday night, tuck, 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 Another list of questions. Out to the coffee shop, 2 or 2.30. This went on for 13 weeks. Every Saturday night. I don't know what this was doing to my Sunday morning sermons, but nevertheless, every Saturday night till 2 or 2.30, I was answering his questions, giving him more stuff to read. And he always came back. He had always read it. And then at the end of 13 weeks, he looked at me and he said, all right, I'll become a Christian. Now, of the various people I've led to the Lord over the years, I've never had one come in such a sort of straight, linear, logical, coherent, eh, okay, that's the truth, I believe it, fashion. But, yes, he, he did marry Peggy. And eventually they became missionaries. I mean, but but th- th- this, th- th- this was an amazing conversion, and all of his doubt to begin with was, in fact, grounded in ignorance. The way you handle that doubt is inform it. Do, 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 do you see? But sometimes doubt is is grounded in nasty choices. 
Maybe not one big choice by which you reject God. Maybe 10,000 little ones. You are, you are converted at the age of 18. And you live a faithful Christian life and marry a Christian woman. and You have children. and Then about the age of 40, 45... You're in the middle levels of management, feeling the pressure. And no longer are you teaching a Sunday school class. You're too busy. You're on the road. And your own prayer life cools off. And your own witness, well, you haven't witnessed to anybody about Christ for about 10 years now. And you're no longer praying with your spouse. And whatever spiritual leadership takes place in the home is, is your wife's doing it, not you. So you're transmitting to your children the view that Christian life is for women and children. And gradually you're becoming more distant and instead of showing up for church services and prayer meeting maybe once a month if you can get there because after all the football game is on on Sunday morning and, and whatever. And finally, it, it, it grabs hold of you and you go to the pastor and, and, and you say, you know, my Christian life is just about shot. I, I, I don't believe most of this stuff anymore. I mean, I, I, I just don't believe it. What should your pastor say to you? Should he say, well, you know, once saved, always saved, no problem. If he's got any smarts, what your pastor will say to you is something like this. With whom are you sleeping other than your spouse? When did you stop praying? What started you on all these bad choices that have rotted away your life? God have mercy on your soul. Unless you repent, you are in extreme danger. Don't you see what John says in 1 John 2, verse 19? Some people went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they never really were of us. Are you going to be one of those? So in this case, the last thing you want to do is engender assurance. What you want to do in this case is engender a great deal of doubt. Thank you very much. Did did you see? In other words, when people come to you with questions about assurance, then you must engage in what the Puritans called the cure of souls. That is, it is understanding Christian counseling as a kind of spiritual medicine. And as in the medicine that we all know, you begin with diagnosis. If you don't have an accurate diagnosis, your prescription is probably going to be pretty bad too. Do you see? So when people come with doubts, lacking assurance for one reason or another, then the first thing you've got to do is find out where these doubts are coming from. Are they coming from lack of information? Are they coming from nurtured, growing, unconfessed, unrepented sin? Or another woman that I got to know, she was just about old enough to be my mother. I was a young pastor at the time. She was the wife of a fellow pastor whom I held in very high regard. She was godly. She was, um, she was a gem. She was a lovely woman. She was mature. She, she was prayerful. She was disciplined. She was a Bible reader. She talked fluently about the knowledge of Christ and so on, so on, so on. But she wrestled all the time with doubt. She read First John, and what she heard was, 
you've got to love your brothers or else you don't have the right to assurance. And boy, I just don't love people enough. There's sometimes, quite frankly, I resent them, hate their guts. This text says that, 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 that if, if I'm really a Christian, I, I, I won't sin. I, I can sin. I mean, I, I'm beyond sinning. I'm, I, 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 and I sin all the time. I, I know in thought and word and deed, sins of omission, sins, sins of commission, and I, I'm still a sinner. So, so how, therefore, can I possibly have the right to Christian assurance? And everybody looks at her and thinks she's a marvelous Christian, and she herself is writhing in an agony of doubt on the inside. So what will I say to her? Well, I say, well, I say, you'd better repent some more. You're in real danger. You could be under 219. You know, they went out from us because, it, because this makes it very clear that they were not of us. Is that what I should say to her? Or should I say to her, don't you understand? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, purifies us from all iniquity. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So I sent her away with packets of Bible verses that I wanted her to memorize and then recite to herself, once she had memorized them, flawlessly, word perfect, about 20 verses. When she had memorized them, I wanted her to recite them to herself a minimum of three and ideally five times a day, out loud, on her own preferably on her knees. And when she had done that for a whole month, then come back and talk to me. And until then, I didn't want to see her again. Because I wanted her mind to be shaped by the word of God, the promises of God that she was having a hard job absorbing while she was focusing on four or five verses in 1 John abstracted from a whole lot of other things. She got the balance all wrong. It was out of kilter. Do do, do you see? Now let me come to the heart of the issue. The Bible gives spectacularly free and gracious assurance to all Christians who are following Jesus. It begins to take away assurance and engender self-criticism and doubt For those who call themselves Christians who exhibit no fruit whatsoever. Every pastor who's been in charge of a congregation for a few years has certainly come across some saint, some old man or old woman who comes up and takes his hand in theirs and says, you know, my Johnny is, is, is 43 now. And, and quite frankly, he's, he's a rebel, you know. He's, he's in his fourth marriage and he's drunk half the time and he's a blasphemer and he's brutal with his kids. But, you know, he made a profession when he was 15 at Bible camp and I believe once saved, always saved. Don't you, Pastor? <coughs> and the answer to that is, Yes, I do truly believe once saved, always saved. But I also believe that once saved, truly saved, the gospel is the power of God to transformation, to salvation. And if it has no, if it has in no way transformed your son, 
then you have the obligation to think of him as an unbeliever and pray for him that God will have mercy on his wretched soul. In other words, genuine Christian faith is not just believing that something, something propositional, without any transformation of life. Genuine faith issues in genuine transformation. Somebody was mentioning John Newton earlier. Newton here is very shrewd. Toward the end of his life, he wrote, in effect, this is a simplified version of his exact words, he looks back on his life as a slave trader. He transported something like 20,000 slaves across the Atlantic, and in his nightmares, he could still hear them scream. And then he was converted and eventually went for theological training and became pastor of the little church, a Baptist church in Olney in the Midlands. You can still go to his museum and see manuscripts of his sermons. And he wrote, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what one day I will be. But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, there is a Christian who is not pretending that he or she is sinlessly perfect. Then you're self-deceived. You're actually calling God a liar. Reread 1 John 1. Nor is he a Christian who is utterly crushed by the fact that he still has sin because he is pressing on toward what he one day will be. But he does look back and see that he is not what he was. There is evidence of fruit in the life. Do, 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 do you see? And his confidence, the sole basis of his admission, will still be Christ and his crossword. Your transformed life is not the basis of your admission into the new heaven and the new earth. The only basis of your admission is Christ and his cross work. We have an atoning sacrifice, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You're back to 1 John 2 and 1 John 4. But attesting to the reality of this transformation in your life is the testimony of the Spirit and transform living. Still short of what it one day will be, but quite different from the conduct and behavior of a world that does not know Christ. If your thoughts and priorities and speech and values and loves and hates, what you do with your time and your money and your energy and your fantasy life and everything else is indifferentiable from that of the world, where is the evidence of the power of God within you? Do you see and at that point, this book that is written in order to provide assurance to those who believe actually begins to undermine those who claim they believe but show no fruit anywhere. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. These Christians bombarded by the world, by, by, by the Gnostics around them, were being told again and again that they did not have an inside track with God, they did not belong to the inner ring, they did not really understand. And John says, no, no, no. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you've been born again. You have the anointing. You are from God. 
Not only so, but take a look at your own lives, and you will see that they have changed substantially. That, too, becomes additional witness to the fact that God has worked within you. I write this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now then, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That is, one of the implications of this assurance is that when we approach God in our prayers, we have more confidence than if we know we've got a whole lot of lurking secret sin buried away. It's hard to pray when you're acting badly. You can't go and settle into your computer and watch a lot of porn and then have a decent quiet time. Can't be done. You can't nurture bitterness and resentment and then go and have a decent quiet time. The first thing you need to do is repent, confess it as sin, vow afresh to fight it, and and then go and seek the face of God. Do, 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 Do you see? So the more, in other words, that you obey Christ and love the brothers and sisters and see the fruit of the gospel in your life, the easier it is to approach God in prayer with confidence. Now that was spelled out already in chapter 4, in chapter 3, in a section that we skipped over for want of time. 3, 19 to 22, if you want to go back and look at it afresh. Here it's summarized again. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, this confidence that God will give us things according to his will can lead us astray. That is to say, we might start having the attitude, well, you know, all you have to do is pray, your will be done, and that covers it for the day. If it's according to your will, may it be done, Lord, amen. But that becomes a kind of fatalism, quesada, sada. You've heard these endless debates, prayer changes things. No, it doesn't change things because it's already settled in the foreknowledge and the counsel of the eternal God. John Stott used to say, it's not so much that prayer changes things, prayer changes you so that you want the things that God wants. Well, there's some truth to that, but nevertheless, um, James can say you have not because you ask not. I mean, prayer does get some things too. How do you put the sovereignty of God and 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 and, and yet the the obligation to pray, the, the fact that prayer does bring things down? How do you bring those things together? I first started thinking about these things when I was uh, an intern minister trying to plant a church in the west end of Ottawa. I was under the supervision of another minister who was still single, and he insisted that we, use, we should meet together on Monday nights to pray. So who was I to disagree? We, we went around to his place on Monday nights, and we prayed for an hour or two hours or three hours, as the case may be, and quite frankly, it was hard work. You know, you pray for uh, everybody you know and the missionaries and people in Pongo Pongo, and then you look at your watch, three minutes gone. <laughs> And this guy's determined that we pray back and forth for, for, for a couple of hours. You know, am I the only one that's ever had experiences like this? <laughs> so after three or four weeks of this stuff, where I, transparently what he was doing was trying to increase my frustration level, um, he said, next week we're going to do something a little different. So the next week 
we got there and we spent maybe 20 minutes or half an hour in praying back and forth, thanking God for who he was and reminding ourselves of the attributes of God and the names of Christ and so on, so on, so on. And then he said, what should we pray for this week? What's, what's on your mind? Well, it so happened that I had just received a letter from a woman that both of us knew. We'll call her June. Both of us knew her through a church in Montreal. June was born on the wrong side of the tracks. She, 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 she had a wretched home, was abused by her father, and everything had gone wrong in her life. But gloriously, while she was in nursing training, she got converted through the church that both Ken and I had been part of. Wonderfully converted. And uh, it took a couple of years to get some of the things sorted out in her life, but she graduated from nursing school, and and now she was practicing her nursing in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And and, and then she was diagnosed with a vicious cancer, which she was told was going to take her out in six weeks. And she wrote this letter to me in full bitterness of mind and heart. Why is God picking on me? After all I've been through, all the things that I've suffered in my life, all the abuse that I've had. Why is God picking on me? Why doesn't he pick on somebody his own size? Four or five pages of venom and bitterness. All right, you've got the letter. What are you going to pray? God rebuke her sharply. Doubtless she needs some sort of rebuke, but that does sound a bit harsh. Lord, take her home swiftly. How about heal June? I have no doubt that God can heal, but there's certainly no promises that he must heal everybody this side of the general resurrection. Paul can leave Trophimus behind, sick, What shall you pray for June? You can try a general, bless June. Well, that sort of covers it, but it's not exactly specific. Well, as we talked back and forth, Ken led me into thinking about what we should be praying for June. We were convinced she had been genuinely, solidly converted. So we reminded ourselves of all the texts that promise that God will keep his own. He who has begun a good work in us will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. The Lord knows his own. He knows them all by name. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And on and on. We quoted text after text, wrote them down. And we prayed, Lord God, if in truth she really is your own, then will you not keep your own promises and restore June to full faith and confidence so that she can see the cross and live with eternity's values in view. Restore the joy of her salvation to her. And if you would be so kind as to heal her, that would be wonderful. But at least do the things that you have promised. It took us two hours to work through eight things, where again we attached verses and so on, so on, so on. Then we got down to pray. He took the first, I took the second, so on, so on, so on. We were done in half an hour. And I went out feeling as if I had done business with God. Because I was praying in Jesus' name according to his will. You see, according to his will is according to what Scripture actually says. That's how you know it's the will of God. You're praying for people, situations, and so on in line with the will of God. So that this God in prayer 
is sovereign not only over the events, but over you, the prayer. It's not as if you are giving advice to God that God wouldn't have thought of on his own. God's sovereignty extends to the means as well as to the ends of the prayer. And you now become part of that. That was Monday night. Thursday, I got a letter from June. She had written it Tuesday. She said, Dear Don, I don't know what happened, but this morning I woke and all my fears had disappeared. I am so ashamed of my bitterness. If God wants to take me home, it can only be for his glory and for my good. I am so eager to see him face to face. Another three or four pages of thanksgiving and gratitude. Well, don't you think that next Monday when we met to prayer, I had a different attitude toward Monday night prayer time? Of the original eight, three were answered equally dramatically, though the other two were over a longer period of time. A couple were things that we should be praying for all the time, like pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers in his harvest field. We should be praying for that always. And three, we actually revised as we thought about them a little bit more in the light of God's word. So what this text is saying is, if you have confidence before God, because he has saved you, and you see something of his power transforming your life, you have, promise, you have the assurance of his promises as you go before him that he will answer anything that you ask for in line with his will. And the way you find out his will is precisely in the place where he has disclosed it, in his most holy word. And your prayer times likewise become hours of power, to use the old Billy Graham expression, rather than, than mere duty that you have to churn through with resentment and misery. And then, in this book, he applies it to one particular situation, verses 16 and 17, a brother who is falling away, but leading to, not to death, it's not that serious, not someone who should be abandoned as apostate, but uh, someone in a less serious situation. I wish I had time to unpack that, um, but I don't. Let me come to the final three great Propositions, things we know, verses 18 to 20. Stott says, Here are no tentative, hesitant suggestions, but bold, dogmatic affirmations that are beyond dispute. What do we know? Number one, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. That's the language of chapter three. Now it's got to have the caveats in, does not continually practice sin. Sin is not done here, but at the same time you realize that where sin does take place, we have an advocate with a father. You have to put in the context of the entire book. But nevertheless, there is something bold and shocking. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God, that is the, holy, the, the Lord Jesus himself, begotten of God in his incarnation, keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Second proposition, we know that we are children of God. There's assurance. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That is, we are in a dualistic world, those who are saved and those who are not, those who know Christ and those who don't, those who have eternal life and those who don't. Do you, do you see? And, and we know where we are um, and that the rest of the world is under the control of the evil one. That becomes a, a form of 
moral and ethical and spiritual realism if you understand the exclusive claims of the gospel. It also becomes an incentive to evangelism. Third, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true. That is, if we do stand on this side with God, it's not because we're brighter or smarter, have a higher IQ, it's because the Son of God has given us understanding. We have received this anointing from God himself so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. You're back to the Christological truth claim. He is the true God and eternal life. Then look at the last line. Throughout this book, John has said nothing about idolatry. So why does he introduce his theme here? You see, what he is saying in effect is, Anything that diverges from these fundamentals that he has laid out is, in fact, idolatry. It's a different God. It's a different ethical system. It's a different structure of thought. If you abandon the truth that God has himself disclosed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and all that flows from it, the nature of the game is idolatry. Let us pray. We read, my dear children, keep yourself from idols. So in the quietness of these moments, in our own hearts where we sit, we confess our idols to you and hunger to see them torn down. We pray that nurtured sins may be abandoned. We pray that there may be fresh resolution in our lives to pursue him who is true. We pray that in our own minds and lives, we will see working out in our behavior the immutable bond between loving God and obeying his commandments. And undoubtedly, Heavenly Father, even in a relatively small crowd like this, there are some here who still have not tasted and seen that you are good. They do not know what sins forgiven looks like, feels like, what it means. They have heard a lot of God talk and Jesus talk, but do not know what it means to place their confidence and trust in Christ Jesus this God-man who bore the sins of his own people in his body on the tree. Will you not work in them now by your Holy Spirit, giving them this anointing so that where they sit even now,
they lift up their hearts and cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And for all of us, merciful God, restore our joy in believing so that our lives are characterized by the assurance of faith that issues not least in transformed praying. For Jesus' sake, amen.